Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 270th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Kira Hollowell-Morris. Kira is the founder of Morris Financial Concepts, one of the oldest independent fee-only RAs in Charleston, South Carolina, that oversees $350 million in assets under management for 250 client households. What's unique about Kira, though, is how she has steadily scaled the growth of the firm by taking the time to find and retain top talent, and along the way, developing a willingness to quickly let go of any new hire who doesn't meet the standards the firm is trying to achieve. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Kira consciously controls her firm's growth by trying to grow fast enough to create new opportunities for her team, but not so quickly that she can't hire and develop the talent it takes to serve clients well. How Kira concentrates on building the company's culture by hiring employees who see financial planning as a calling and have a combination of competency and personality, rather than selling for those who may have one but not the other. And why, though firing B members of the team who are getting the job done can be tough, Kira refuses to settle when there are so many people who may be better fit for the firm. We also talk about how Kira built her media presence to drive growth of new clients in the early years of the firm, how that growth eventually squeezed her personal capacity and made her realize she needed to change how she trained and developed her team so that she could focus on client meetings and being able to spend more time with her family, and how Kira developed a system to communicate the firm's expectations and standards effectively with her team while also holding them accountable. And be certain to listen to the end, where Kira shares how she draws upon her fourth-degree black belt, meditation, and running half marathons to cope with stress, how Kira believes in sustaining a life balance to ensure personal needs are being met before the needs of production, and how Kira aims to give back and uplift her own community by creating a mixed-use development where minority-run local businesses can thrive. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kira Morris. Welcome, Kira Hollowell Morris, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for having me on. This is a real honor and pleasure, and I'm very excited. Well, I, I'm excited as well. I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation today and and talking a bit about a theme of of managing growth. Uh, you know, I, I know you've been through both some some very fast uh, growth stages for the firm, and and then sort of some consciously much slower phases of growth for the firm, like you know, chosen to grow more slowly. And just I've always been personally fascinated by the discussion of kind of managing growth and and what it means to to manage growth, like to to sort of consciously say as a business owner, okay, I'm going to do some things because I want to grow this thing faster. And then like, I'm, I'm going to do some things. So I want to grow this, grow this thing slower. Uh, Cause I, I find for most advisors, just even, and perhaps especially when they're going through fast growth, we don't have, like we talk about managing growth, but usually managing growth just means manage the like hiring and training of more people to handle the growth. We don't literally manage the growth. Like Hey, I think I'm going to grow slower for a while because I got to get some things in place, and then I'm going to try to grow faster again. It's just sort of like managing growth means managing the consequences of what happens when you're growing a lot. And so, I just—it seems you've taken a much more conscious approach to this is some time when I want to grow faster. This is some time when I want to grow slower. And so, I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation. Just what does it really mean to manage growth, and how do you how do you think about when you want to turn the dial up and when you want to turn the dial down? 
you're right. That's a fascinating discussion. And, you know, you're always hearing, if you're not growing, you're dead. And, well, my story is in the beginning, you know, you're starting a firm, you've got to grow. You've got to grow. You've got to have a certain momentum going underneath you and stuff. And so back in the 90s and, and 2000s, early or 2000s, I had done a lot of things to get public attention, national attention, got a lot of media releases and things going on. So my name was out there and we attracted a lot of very good, high quality clients from all over the country. And we were definitely in a, in a fast growth pace. And what I was finding was I didn't have the capacity inside the office. So it's like you're saying, to manage the growth, you had to then go hire. And as I was noticing, as I'd hire people, managing the people was taking up my time versus my love area, which was interacting with clients and really being there for client service. So I was torn between, okay, managing all these wonderful new people who were showing up by hiring new people that I then had to go train and, and manage them versus slowing it down and taking care of the people that I had hired and really putting the quality of service in place. So we made a conscious decision before the 2008 downturn to really control growth and understand it and, you know, hire a little bit more slowly as far as getting the right people in place and started really focus on building the culture and understanding the growth and putting growth needs first versus just massive growth. This sparks a lot of questions for me, though. So, so first is I've, I've got to ask, like, what were you doing to get all of this? As you mentioned, like uh, public national media mentions that was making like growth appear and high quality clients appear from across the country. Like, what, what were you doing? Yeah. And in the 90s, 93 to 98, I served on the first, it was the ICFP board. And then I got off just as the merger was getting started between ICFP and IAFP. During that time period, um, met some different people who were doing magazines. So I got like put on the cover of Worth Magazine, um, got written up uh, four different times as being one of the top advisors in the country. And that was how it kind of got started as far as some sense of attention. From there into the early 2000s, I then went from the ICFP board to the um, board of governors for the CFP certification and got some more similar attention to that and was in several magazines that were not just professional inside magazines, but were public, public articles and public magazines and written up. And so those, you know, people look at that and it's kind of like the magazines that sell or <laughs> what's your top 10 mutual funds for last year. You're going to buy that to learn what's the top 10, which I don't know that they might be the lowest 10 the next year, but anyway, people buy it. And that's the same kind of thing that I think that the magazine saw with these financial advisors is, you know, people look at it, here's the top 60, here's the top 200, um, you know, financial planners and people look at it. And if you find someone in your area or near your area, you might call them up and find out more about what they do and how they do it. And that's how we got the growth in the first place. Interesting. So did you get involved with some of these organizations in the hopes of building visibility or just did that kind of happen to come as a, as a, a side effect once you got there? I, I did not make a huge attempt. It got, like I said, the Worth magazine and the connection. Bob Clark at that time was the uh, senior editor of Worth magazine from, I don't know when, 93 to 2000. I'm pulling out numbers there. And he actually did a presentation in which he fell off the back of the stage 
during his presence. He was moderating a panel of fee-based versus commission-based, and and you know you had both sides going on, and he was having this discussion about should you be fee-only. This is '93, so should you be fee-only versus you know what's what's bad about handling commissions? What's all right about doing commissions? You know, and so he was. It, it got hot. You know, the whole panel got was intense. The audience, you definitely had both sides in the audience and stuff. And as he was walking across the stage, go back to the podium, he fell off the back of the stage. And so this was all done in a hotel in Washington. And as I got in the elevator after that, that uh, panel discussion, he got on the elevator also. (laughs) And, and I reached my hand out and said, hi, my name's Kira Morris, and you're Bob Clark, and you just fell off the stage from that presentation. And I just want to tell you, it was a great presentation. You handled it well. Well, that started a friendship, you know, just kind of being a little bit silly with him, and that started a friendship that then led to, led to other things. And and um, so that's that's the only reach out, literally, that I literally. did. In the, um, in, the, in the elevator after you fell yeah. off the stage. And so it, it started from there, and then you know, I've it's been places, met people, and it just it that kind of thing just happened now it's also been as much a conscious effort to not do that to not try and get in the public eye to slow it down more um and so you know later on when it was like 2007 2000 before 2008 so six seven period i had hired some good people really wanted to nurture them you know, had great client base and made the decision not to continue to, you know, if I got a call from a reporter, it used to be, all right, a reporter's on the phone. I got to get back to them quickly because they probably got four more people that they can get to if they don't get to use. So do it fast. And it's like, no, let them go find those four other people right now. And so a conscious choice to not follow up um, as quickly, not to be rude, but just to not, not go after it. And then as I stopped really going after it and stopped pretty much even as I got off the CFP board, uh, continued with the different conferences that were out there, but did not. In fact, I, I, the only conference I really go to now, and this is not saying anything bad about the conferences. This is just my personal choice. Um, the only conference I really go to now is the uh, FPA's retreat that's coming up in, I think, May. I hope it's coming up in May. We'll see. But, we all you know, all willing that yeah. various variants settle down by then. But so yes, I, it's not only cost. conscious decision not to go after media, but I, I've stopped pretty much doing a lot of the national things that were getting me more of the attention. And there's other people who have stepped in place. There's no lack of phenomenal people who have stepped in place who are, are have continued and who are now getting the national attention. So that was also a conscious decision. So talk just a little bit more as as you said, just you got into this period around oh five, oh six where, you know, had a lot of growth, didn't feel like you had the capacity though because of the growth that was flowing. So I just talk to us a little bit more about that. I mean, what was happening on the ground in practice? Like how was we don't have capacity showing up for you? Right. Um, at that time I was the only CFP in my firm. I'd hired two people who were studying and wanted to sit for the CFP. They hadn't been through the CFP program, but they were very competent people and wanted to sit for the CFP. We had great clients and 
you know, just trying to manage all of that was what was going on. That it was like, okay, I want to take care of these two staff people, help them along their way. And I never wanted to give up. In fact, I still don't want to give up my client facing activities. I enjoy being in front of clients and doing the work with my clients. And so just managing that was what said, okay, I got to slow down and I've got a great family. So, you know, being able to have the family time that I wanted to have, manage the firm, take care of the, the staff and take care of the clients just all got to where it's like, okay, how do I do this all and do it in a way that I'm still having fun and keeping a, a life balance? We don't call it work-life balance, which everybody, oh, you know, managing this work-life balance. And I'm doing what I love. My work is my love. My work is my play. But I've got other things that are my loves and my plays also. So it's a life balance of being able to do all the things that I love, that I want to play with, that I want to enjoy, and which client facing is one of them. And doing financial planning, you know, is part of that whole balance. And so just managing life so that I could continue to enjoy it, continue to grow in a way that was reasonable for my needs and for the staff that I was hiring. So how was the balance getting off for you at that point? I mean, was it uh, you were getting pulled in and had to do tons of hours? Was it like, no, I'm not going to do tons of hours, but then as a result, things are slipping through the cracks? Was it something else? Like what Um, was happening? That's exactly what was happening. I mean, hiring people still, I mean, even today, although I'm not the only trainer today, this is back earlier on when I had a a smaller staff. We're still a small staff, but I had a lot smaller staff. And I was the main trainer. Um, And a, a little sidebar is my back is I'm an engineer. And although I'm going to write a book, even engineers can hug, getting engineers to the stage where they can hug takes a certain process. Hiring people that can handle, we have a good bit of engineers as clients, hiring hiring staff that can handle both the people side of the work that we do and the analytical side. We're a pretty strong analytically based firm and we do a lot of in-depth research and analytics um, you know, for our clients at the same time. We want to have that friendly demeanor. So getting the right staff in place that could meet my desires for presentations was taking up a lot of my time. And a lot of the efforts that I had, you know, during that time and we were growing. So just managing the overall, you know, finances also, oh, oh, stepping into the the scene big time in this, this period, you know, you have compliance and compliance is a pain in the Royal Bahookas. And, you know, so that's also stepping in. So managing the, the staff, taking care of compliance. And I was the chief compliance officer, chief investment officer, chief financial planner, and, you know, business manager, you know, trying to wear all the hats at that time. and didn't really have, I was, I was getting people in place, but they weren't there yet to really take over all the roles. And that might've been when people say you can hire these people from the beginning. And that might've been where I didn't do it right. And hiring a, going out and finding somebody who's already CFO quality or whatever to step in um, wasn't how I grew it. So what was the hire you had to make to get through? I mean, was like, was there a particular hire, a particular role that changed that trajectory or was it just a sheer like volume? We just need more people in total. Well, it wasn't, it was, it was a hire. 
it was the right hires, not just a hire, but the right hire. So I had hired some good people and they taught me more about how to manage good people. And when we talk about having A player people, you know, how do you really manage A player people and how do you let go of B players if you're not wanting B players? So the right hires, you know, getting really A quality people in and then getting them to where they were performing at the level that they could perform just took some time. And that was the big thing at that time was just getting the people in place and giving them the time to grow into their capacity. And I did not have the big hire that that's helped turn the corner also was a, a really good investment back uh, person. I was the chief investment analyst. I did hire somebody that helped a lot to put the trades up and, and confirm on the next day and you know handle the behind the scenes stuff and operations for what we were doing. But other than that, you know, getting another uh, person who could really help me look at, analyze our model, see what was going on, interact with clients when you have a downturn like 2008 um, and help with those kind of things. So it was a variety of hires, but they had to be good good hires. didn't have to be a lot. Having a good planner other than myself in the office, having a good investment person other than myself in the office. Our operations, I mean, people don't downplay your operations person. If you've got a good operations person, when I say operations, I'm talking about people that do the downloads if you're doing AUM, who can take care of opening up accounts, moving money from one place to another, or getting money to a client when they need it, handling RMDs, required minimum distributions from their IRAs. If you've got a good quality person who is taking care of those behind the scenes person, that can make or break a firm. And that was one of the key hires that we put in place that really showed us that, you know, okay, here's here's a person that's freeing up the rest of us to really do what we want to do. And that's, you know, interacting with the financial planning overall, you know, for our clients. So it sounds like three, I guess, three, three core areas, which for so many of us literally are the core is the business. Someone that can drive the investment side that you've got confidence with, someone that can be the planner and even be client facing that you've got right. confidence in and someone that drives operations. Right. Yeah. The other planner, I definitely want confidence in because I want them to be their own lead planner. I don't want to be the lead planner for every client that walks in the door. Um so, you know, building another planner or, or helping another planner get to that stage where they're comfortable and I'm comfortable with them being the lead planner without me being in the room. And so you said you had this approach of trying to uh, attract and manage A players and, and let go of B players. So just how does that work in practice? You just, what do okay, you- this, is, this is the hardest part. What does management of this look like for you? When this is the hardest part, but I tell people, you know, that because I got in trouble with, I had some good staff and we were looking for some more good staff and we'd pull them, we'd, we'd hire these people and within six months or less than a year, I was letting them go again. And so my other good staff people were going, you're letting them go too quickly. They're, they're quality people. They're quality people. They're good people. You're letting them go too quickly. And basically, I'm like, yeah, but I didn't get along with them. And leaning on the rest of the staff, they come and say, oh, you've got such a good staff. They're willing to help me. Going, ah, the rest of my staff shouldn't be there to just be your help. And you know, so I would let people go. We then hired someone. And this only person on our staff that we've got that really doesn't come from a finance background. We hired her in 2015 and she's an operations person, as I was talking about. We've been really searching for this quality operations person and we hired her. And in less than three months, she's a philosophy major out of the University of Fresno. We had had a banking background, a little bit of banking experience. But in less than three months, 
everybody knew she was the right person for this job. Mm-hmm. So I use her as an example even today. How quickly did we know that Laura was the right person? And I can say that about everybody else on the staff that's here now. It's like, how quickly did you know? And there's something that lets you know. They might not have all the skill sets. They might have some quirky personality, but they still fit the team as far as overall personality. And there's something about their competence. So it's both the competence and the personality side or cultural side that's got to be the full blend. And so I'm willing, and this is the hardest part, I'm willing to let people go fairly quickly if I'm not feeling the whole harmony of the picture. And so when I really started recognizing this and doing it, the rest of the staff had to kind of bear with me. And they weren't totally sure I was doing it right. And this was like 2016 or so. I have a little leadership group. We went off on a leadership retreat and we had two staff people that weren't good fits. I didn't bring up that they weren't good fits. I just said, okay, I'm going to say the name of a staff person to the team that was there. It was four of us. That was all. So I'm going to say the name of a staff person. I'm not going to ask you to say anything, but just feel how you feel inside when I say the name of the staff person. So I went through the whole staff and just let it resonate with them. I said, did anybody resonate beautifully that as soon as you say their name, you're just instantly a smile shows up on your face or in your heart or whatever. And you're going, I'm so glad I'm working with that person. And did you say anything and you're just kind of your stomach might have gone into a little bit of a knot when that person doesn't quite sit with me as well. And it turns out the same two people that I was feeling were the same two people everybody else had noticed also. And so I told them then I didn't know what I was going to totally do with these two people, but that my goal was that within the next two years, I said two years, today I'm not sure I'd even say two years, that I wanted to have that same exercise with them and that every person that we mentioned would put a smile on their face or a song in their heart. And that was the goal. So we, I started doing that and now, you know, it's, it's happened. It took some time. It takes courage to let people go who aren't the right fit right away. But my confidence now is like, but look who's out there. They're out there. The right people are out there. You don't have to settle for mediocre people. Even though they're good people, I'm not saying they're bad people, but they're not our A players. And so now that's what we've got, and that's what we're holding to. And that's another reason why we've grown slowly. I love that just that framing that the like the right people are out there. You don't have to settle, right? I, I'm 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 sure for some people that that may be taking them to other contexts besides uh, uh, employment and hiring, but you right. know, keeping the business context, uh, like it's it's okay to spend some time to continue to look to really find the right person yeah. that you don't have to settle. So I, yeah. I guess I'm I'm wondering from the flip side though, just okay, but like how do you like how do you get comfortable firing? <laughs> The, well, the rest, I mean, I... <laughs> that's never I, comfortable. I'm not a mean person. <laughs> well, so, I mean, that's why I'm wondering, like, I just... How does that go? Because I, like, to well, me, to, like, to me, B players are an interesting play. Like, D players, I think most of us know how to fire, right? It's like, right. okay, you're basically one step away from getting having a client, like, fire us or sue us yourself because you're doing really not good things. Like, right. I don't know right. how to get rid of a D player. That's a problem. There's usually very clearly a problem. Uh, you know, the phenomenon of like call it B players is, I mean, they tend to be getting the job done. They tend right. to be reasonably personable to be with. Otherwise, they'd probably be C's or D's. So like there's usually, I find this, there's usually not a very overt pain point. With a B player. 
with a B player. So like, how do you mentally get there? What you're, what you're talking about is fascinating. And it's something I've really been, you know, just listening to and, and continuing to pay attention to. I don't think you should get confused with able and willing as far as looking at those two words. And so an A player is both able and willing. A B player may be willing, but not totally able to do everything that you'd like for them to do, but they get the job done and they don't complain and, you know, they show up on time and they'll say yes if you ask them to do a project. They might not be able to finish the project and have to pull in three other people to help them finish, but they're, they're, willing. And so what we've identified as we talk about people now is, you know, the able and willing. Obviously, if they're not able and not willing, eh, there's your D player, you know, you move them on pretty quickly. If they're able but not willing, eh, you know, that person's just not going to perform if they're not really willing. So the, the real bugaboo are those people that are willing but not quite able. And what do you do with them? So, you know, you've you've got to move them on, though, to be both able and willing to create the strength that then the firm can continue to do what it needs to do. Otherwise, you're having to grow the firm enough to support these people who aren't helping you grow the firm enough to support everybody else. And so how do you handle this conversation? Even just down, like, how do you explain your, you know, you seem very willing and you've gotten all your work done. I'm firing you. Just, well, no, I'd put them on notice first, probably, <laughs> you know, something like that, which says, but, I mean, just how, do, how does that work? Right. Cause again, like you, D players usually easier to fire. Like, Hey, yeah. you just did a really bad thing for like the third time. So right, like right. we have a three strikes you're out rule. <laughs> like just again, <laughs> you know, D, D's are a little bit easier to, to terminate and wind down. So how do you even set up the conversation for um, letting a, 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 you know, a solid B player okay. go? Now, if, if I've, if somebody has been around long enough that at first they made it through and everybody's feeling like this is a really good person to pull on board and you've made it through the three to six month time frame that that's you're going, this person's worth the effort. In the first three to six months, like I've let people go. We give everybody a three month easy out. So within the first three months, I don't even have to say much. It's not for cause. I don't have to give them a lot of excuses. It's just, it's not really working. Um, and I, and I pay a fairly decent severance, even if they've only been with me for three months, just to let them move on. So those are the easy ones. Cause you haven't really built that. Oh, they're part of the family and blah, blah, blah. Once they've been around longer than the six months, you've got to start identifying what is it, what, and give some examples. What is it that they're not doing right? You know, is it poor judgment in, you know, trying to help make decisions about a client or in supporting somebody else? Is it that they can't get a project done? You know, that they've um, had all the training that they should have, and yet you've asked them to do a fairly simple analysis of something, and they've got to go to two or three other people in the firm to help them get it done, you know, type of thing. So you've got to start really giving an example. What are the things that are, are not sitting well as far as the able side? I said, if they're They've got to be the B players that we're talking about are those that are willing but not quite able. So you've got to start really looking at what are those things that they're not quite able to do that are pulling the firm backwards or not helping the firm go forwards. And 
And so that's the that's the part that then it takes a little bit of time. And usually I'll pull them in under me just to say, okay, what's what's going on? And, and I want this person now to work closer to me so that I can start looking at things and, and really identifying what's going on if we're not seeing the performance get to other levels before this point in time and you know, working with and, other people. So I guess part of part of it, like part of my my takeaway from how you're framing this is I feel like for a lot of people that have, we'll just kind of call them like B players on the team, you know, they're mostly getting stuff done. It's going okay. Yeah, you know, every now and then there's probably something that I wish they handled a little bit differently. But like, you know, it's fine enough. Like we we satisfice, I think is the label for it. Right. Uh, so what what strikes me about what you're describing is that when you've got those situations you're spending a lot of time trying to get I just like basically trying to get clear about where they actually are weak right and still not doing well despite right. generally doing okay like not you not to the, be negative but just to like and you get the nail clear on, the head, on where what's going on like what's really the gap right when you're, I call it churning when you're churning over somebody when you're spending your time trying to figure out why why they're not able to perform why they're not getting it done that right there is one of the first signs that something's wrong and it takes time it takes time to try and coach them to try and you know if you're sitting down to talk to them about something and they haven't done it right you know how do you and they're regularly not doing something right how do you frame it so that you're not hurting their feelings so that you're moving them on I mean it just takes a lot of effort and the magic that happens when you've got A players is that the effort is effortlessless. Right. And the magic with the team, when you've got a player team of working together, of leaning on each other. I was talking to you about life balance. You know, right now with COVID, we've got people with children and, and all kind of issues going on. But we all know that we're going to take care of each other and we can depend on each other and we're not worried about, um, you know, I've got to be home with my child today. Therefore the work's not going to get done. I mean, we help each other. We are there for each other. There's a whole team approach. Well, if you've got somebody that you don't trust to really help again, that's taking some of the magic and the energy away from the firm into supporting somebody who's not really bringing all the magic and energy that you know you can get. And then how does this conversation queue up? Well, it queues up with, usually it's me, you know, sitting down. In fact, so far it's only been me, you know, sitting down with them going, okay, let's go through some of the the issues that are happening. And you start off, you always have to start off with saying what they're doing well, what are the positive things, and then queuing into, but here are some areas we really need to see improve. I try and come up with things that are measurable so that we can set a time frame in place, a review period. And this were another great source of the team. I'm not saying everybody on the team has got to be mirrors or the exact same of each other. I've got another you know, really good staff person you know, named Tiffany Ritchie, and she and I are so different. And you know, I've, I pulled her in when I'm having this kind of conversation with somebody because it's like, help me, help me look at this. We get two lenses. And she actually came up with this wonderful um, you know, spreadsheet, drop down box, you know, stuff like that, that says, okay, here's the areas and here's how we're going to rate. And here's what we need you to do over this period of time in order not to be let go. And we basically put these people on notice, give them some measurable things they've got to do and give them a time frame. And so you said a, just a very specific, here's what you've got to improve on because I spent some time with you now to get clear on like you're making bad judgment calls about this or you're making too many paperwork mistakes on that. They're minor, but they're adding up. We need to, we need to fix this. So right. 
here's where I need you to focus. You have three months to improve in this. We're going to talk again in three months. No, in one month. We usually set up closer than that. Um, okay. It's a shorter term time periods so that you can get back to them quickly if they're seeing. Usually with, with the notice that I, I've given recently, it was a six-month notice. And I said, here's the things you've got to improve on over six months. And then we set it up to where once a month we review what it is that they're supposed to be improving upon and give them actual score that says, here's where you need to be at the end of, of the six months. And if you're looking at eight players and you put it on a one to ten, they've got to have a nine or better you know, by the end of the um, six-month period and everything that you've identified that they need to improve upon or at least an average of a nine or better. So they might knock it out of the park in some things and not be knocking out the park totally in others and still get that average of nine, you know, type of thing is what we've, what we've really tried to do. And the other thing I do in the beginning also is offer them a three-month severance that says, you know, here, you know, you can either take this, here's what you've got to do over the next six months, or you can take a three-month severance and we can give you a good reference if you go someplace else as far as because like I said, these people are willing, they're just not quite able. And our firm is really a tough firm in the analytical side of what we ask people to do. It's not just sales and client facing and being super nice to people when they walk in the door. We've got to have a strong analytically based team that can actually right. do some of this analytical work that we stand on when we're interacting with clients. And, um, you know, so it, there might be other firms that can fit that aren't as egregious as ours around certain areas or that might be better for their culture. It's not that they're a bad person. So I offer both. No, so far, nobody's so, taken me up on the three-month severance. So you've got someone that you got concerns about. I just want to make sure I'm following how this plays out. So you've, you've okay. got someone you've got concerns about. And right. I'm assuming at least they're past the f- initial first few months. If they right. come on and you're just a few months in, like this isn't working. Right, right. That's easy. Working. It says easier. It's never easier. easy. Yeah. Right. So, so they've been here for some time, but like, you know, they were improving, they've plateaued. It's not where you needed them to be. Right. So you, you kind of got the, the B player stuck on the team. So when this queues up first, it's actually just internal. Like, I think I'm going to have this person report a little bit more to, to me directly if they weren't already, just so I can get a little bit more line of sight and try to get more clarity of what exactly is the issue. Like, is it a paperwork issue? Is it actually that they're not good at detail? Is it that they're actually good at detail, but they're not organized? They're always doing the paperwork at the last minute because it's actually an organization issue or just like whatever exactly. it is. It sounds like you're, you're first, you're just spending a little bit of time close to them trying to crystallize like what exactly is the actual root root issue here right. that they've got a problem with. Once you've got some clarity on that, it's all right, we're going to sit down for a conversation. I, I've got some concerns. Here are some areas where I'm seeing some problems. I'm, I'm going to give you a choice. You can decide that we're just going to part ways. I will give you three months of severance and a, a, a reasonable letter of recommendation if we can just decide this isn't working. If you want to stay, you've got six months to improve. Here are the things you need to improve in. We're going to check in every month over the next six months, and I'm going to actually score how you're doing on your improvement. And if you don't get to this level by the end of six months, then we're still going to have to move on. Right. That that's basically the conversation. Right. And then just they, they make their choice. You score them up over the next six months, and they and they got there, or they didn't. Right. I'm I am struck at least by that from the whole perspective of getting. <laughs> I like getting comfortable to terminate someone at the end. If it if it comes to that at the end of six months, I just I don't know. Maybe this is my you know hyper logical rational <laughs> right. quantitative brain kicking in. But just 
But I think like, I, okay, I get to the end of the six months and literally we sit down, like I'm looking at how you've done. We said you needed to get to a nine. It's literally a bunch of sixes and sevens. Right. Like this is probably going to feel easy. Like just, I, yeah. I mean, they're gone from their end, but I didn't like even my end because I don't like firing anybody yeah. either. Yeah. Uh, just like, and you okay. I mean, we, before the end of the we, six months, we set a score and right. like just, we set a target. You're clearly not reaching it. Like I've got right. a spreadsheet to prove it now. Right. right. But like, yeah. it's, I feel like it becomes easier to rationalize if you're the person who doesn't maybe like firing people and letting them go. Right. When it just, look, we set a super clear system with clear criteria. We scored it up. They're literally just not adding up. Right. I mean, you got it. And you know, you usually know before the end of the six months of what's happening and they know too. Right. Right. And, you know, to, I mean, sometimes you have people who like don't take the three month severance, but then four months in are like, yeah, yeah I think I think I'm just going to bail after all. Right. Do they and, do they can they can they can they come back for the three month severance at that <laughs> point? Or is it like you, you passed, you lost your window? It's pretty much off the table, depending upon the circumstance, but it's pretty much off the table after the first offer. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. But just they real they realize it's not going well. Right, right. So, but so then I got to ask the other end of this. Okay. You know, I know a lot of us in business owner world uh, struggle with this as well, which is like, okay, but if I let them go, then we don't have a person. <laughs> then I got to do even more while they're gone. Then right. I also have to hire a new person right. and that can be challenging. That's like, part of the whole, that's part of the whole thing. And that's where, you know, if you get the, if you get good people in place, you're not having to let them go and you're not having to, to move on. But so letting the people go quick, more quickly, if you've got somebody who's been around for several years that now you're having to pull this conversation and you didn't do it right in the beginning, it's usually what's happened. And so, you know, you, you do have to get somebody in the pipeline and that's where just thinking ahead and going, okay, if I let this person go, what am I willing to do to you know, make ends meet or whatever, you know, for capacity reasons until we can get the next person interviewed and in place. And that's just one of the next steps that's got to happen if it isn't working out. And how do you go about that? Because just there's a certain size for businesses where they're just kind of always in continuous hiring mode and looking for people. So it's like, oh, we're letting someone go. Hey, you know, I talked to Jenny last month. I'm going to actually call her back because we have an opening now. Right, right. Uh, but my impression is like, we're you're not, not growing at that pace. You don't hire at that pace. We're not pace. continually so it's, hiring. We it's use, not like you've got a corral of people, of resumes hanging out to say like, oh, we're just going to go grab the next one off the list now. And it depends on the um, position that we're trying to hire for. If it's for a financial planner that's going to step in and start off as an associate financial planner, you know, we, we know the technical schools that you know have the CFP program in place and you know we'll we talk with the professors and try and get some ideas of who are bright and shining stars there and are and, there are there particular CFP programs uh, schools that you you like to go to for that well we've got two people here from Virginia Tech uh, and you know Virginia Tech's got a phenomenal school we've interacted with a lot of the other beginning planners from Georgia I teach the residency program and have met people from all over uh, mm. from San Diego and and Texas Tech and uh, K-State. And um, I'm going to leave some out that are awesome. But, you know, so that's so you know, just looking at that and saying, here's where we could go. There's also a service. Uh, and uh, Caleb Brown's going to kill me because I can't remember the name of his firm. <laughs> and it's awful. A new, new planner recruiting. You got it. You 
got it. New planner recruiting. And we've had quite a bit of success working with him. In fact, um, two of our hires have come using him for the associate planner because he really puts them through. We let them know what we're looking for, what kind of personality we're looking for as far as kind of a cultural fit. He does all the testing. They actually have to write some simple plans and answer a bunch of questions and stuff. And he scores them both on the people side and the skill set side and stuff. And before they ever make it to our um, our process for interviewing. And we've developed a pretty thorough interview process that we go through also, you know, to help uh, determine if uh, who makes it through and, and who we'd be even wanting to consider hiring. So, the, so I guess, so the first part of how do you get comfortable with this and the fact that you have to replace them is just you, you get to know some CFP programs and you hire a firm that does recruiting. Just right. let them let them give you a list of, of and candidates. That's what, yeah. If we were, we were looking at replacing an associate, I'm probably already in touch with Caleb and willing to and, pay Caleb's fee to get me some people in the pipeline. Um, and I don't have to hire anybody and it'll cost me something right. if I don't, but that's okay. But you said like the, I, like they may – I guess like score people and queue them up, but it sounds like you've you still got your own thing about how you ultimately vet right. who's gonna be a good fit. So what's what's your interviewing process? We've got our own uh, analytical test that they've got to pass. We've got our own writing sample that they they should do, and they they do do. Uh, you know, we we test their own credit scores and stuff like that. Also, we will go after. Um, and you know, once they've done those things and we have an interview process that actually will start with, if I'm not the person that, that you know, we're hiring an associate planner and it's not for me to be my associate planner, but it's for one of the other lead planners in the firm, an associate planner for them, they'll be on the interview side from the very beginning. But we'll pull in the operations team, we'll pull in the investment team, we'll pull in everybody to kind of talk with them. And then if it's not for me, I'm usually the last one that gets pulled in, but they go through a series of... Of two, and if they make it through the second interview, actual interview, not not the testing and stuff like that, the writing skills and the testing skills, but two interviews, and they've made it through both those, then I'll get pulled in for a last round of, of interviews in which we'll get them. By that time, we're trying to get them to come locally and you know interview locally if they're not local, and most of the time they're not, but kind of get them to interview locally and even do something that's kind of a fun thing where we might go out to lunch with them or out to dinner or something like that to do something else with them to see the rest of the fit that's going on. And that's the final stage. And are there particular questions you ask, think things you delve into? Like what's We've what's making your interview process work? One set of, of questions at each stage of the game that we, you know, have written up ahead of time that we've been using now for for the last five years, six years or so. And not much has changed. We've we edited a little bit, not much has changed. Uh, you know, in, in asking those questions at each stage, you know, what questions are we asking? And then by the time I'm coming along, we've played a lot off of the um, give us an example of when you were in this situation to see how, how they'll tell us a story that then covers the situation and gives you a little bit of their personality side, plus their ability to handle the details of what you've asked them to do. So kind of that blend, which is what we're looking for. So we play off so- on that process a lot. I'm trying to think of an example, but as opposed to asking them, do you have a good attention to detail, saying, right. like, give, give me an example of a time where your attention to detail was put to the test and, right. and right. what you did. 
and yeah. just or, see what you know, if you want to see do. how they handled um, an adverse client interaction or something, you know, give me an example of a time when you were uncomfortable interacting with somebody and tell me how you handled it. Mm. And what you're looking for, well, what I'm looking for is you don't want them. And one person described it as, you know, they, as they're telling you the story, they're going to tell you all about the wallpaper and the pictures on the wall and the type of carpet and whether this chair was comfortable, but they're not going to tell you the facts about how they approach their own sentences, how they approach their own questions, how their heart was feeling when the person said, you know, you really screwed this up and I'm mad at you now, you know, but they'll tell you all about kind of the surroundings of what they were going through, but not the real facts about what they were going through and what they were dealing with. And I remember once I was I actually got coached in this process. Uh, this was back in 2011 and got coached in this process with a behavioral gal who was doing all this stuff for HR. And, and she came in and she actually sat with me in this interview. And I had a woman that we were interviewing who to me seemed perfect. I'd gone out to dinner with her. I had so much fun being around her. Um, you know, she had put herself through law school while working for another um, CFP firm and stuff and, and was moving to the area. And I just thought she was awesome. But I was really looking for a backup person who had super attention to detail. And so the gal was sitting with me and, and she we let the other person know, we're going to ask you a series of questions and we're going to break. And the first series of questions are going to be asked by um, my coach. And then the next series of questions I got to ask us. We let them know I was also being coached during this whole thing. And after the first series of questions asked by the coach, we take a break. She goes, well, what do you think? And I'm going, oh, she's awesome. This is so great. I think she's wonderful. And the coach said, tell me the facts that she let you know when you asked her this question. And all of a sudden I started going back to the story that the person told. It's like, well, yeah, you didn't really get a lot of facts, did you? And she said, okay, your turn. You get a turn. Now, I want you to ask her a question when she's actually giving you facts, actually giving you details. And my coach even pointed out, you know, on her email that she sent me about wanting to interview and her resume, all the mistakes that were made grammatically and stuff like that. I goes, her attention to detail isn't showing up here and it hadn't shown up on these other things. Let me, you, you go next, see if you can get her to pay attention to detail. And so I started trying to go going next and asking the questions and I noticed she wasn't. She wasn't giving me back the, the details that I was hmm. wanting to get from her. So finally I came up with one because I knew she had put herself through law school and um, at the end of when she graduated law school, she was actually pregnant. And, you know, she had her baby and I'm going, okay, every woman knows the details around the, and it's her first child, the details, only child of that day. And so I said, tell me about the day your son was born and how you handled it. And all of a sudden my HR person is squirming in her seat. You're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions. And she's squirming her seat because I guess I just stepped over legal bounds, but I got facts. That question got the facts out. The woman was able to tell me about the day her son was born, and it was graphic detail. It was wonderful. The story was so good. Um, and so that was you know, just kind of an example of what I went through and, and you know, getting it out of this person. I didn't hire this person um, who then did move to Charleston, worked for another firm, then started her own firm, and has done quite well. So, you know, it, it, she may have been a good fit for me on the, in the long run, but I didn't hire her at that time. Interesting. Interesting. And so just you're comfortable going there. Right. Right. 
So that's been pretty successful in, in going through all the staff and then for the staff to be as, as honest as possible about their own thoughts around whether this person's making it through the process. And, you know, then when it comes to me, by the time it's made it to me and it's made it through all the other layers, unless there's something really, really quirky and that hasn't happened yet, I'm probably not going to negate their choices and tell them no. So I get a final choice or final chance, but so far, by the time it's made it to me, usually the people they're putting me in front of are, are good people. So take us back now to just like the, the discussion of these turning growth paths. You had kind of this, this fast growth period in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then a, a consciously slower growth. Like I'm going to figure out some of this team and hiring stuff right. in the mid 2000s for the years that followed. So talk to us a little bit more about that that shift. Because I know for so many of us, right, just the early years are so scarce for so long. Right. <laughs> You're like, you kind of get hardwired and like, you always take every opportunity no matter when it comes because you know, right. know when the next come the next one's coming. I guess I'm just wondering, how do you get comfortable? Like, how did you get comfortable with the downshift, right? I'm just imagining the first time of, okay, every time the media calls, you got to call back quickly because otherwise they're going to move on and get someone else. And, and you make this conscious decision of like, you know what? I'm not going to call them back as fast. If they get someone else, that's okay. Like, right. But is it really like, how how is that? Okay. It's, it's, it is an interesting feeling. A lot of my friends are on that Barron's list of the top who's who, you know, in the country. And I look at it and go, wow, I know them. I know them. My firm's as good as their firm, you know, stuff like that. So there's still a feeling that's there that you look at it and going, I could have done that. At the same time, we've done it right in our community. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and we're one of the oldest firms, I mean, real financial planning. We're not, you know, we're not a brokerage firm. We're an independent fee-only registered investment advisory firm. And we're the oldest in Charleston. We've got a great reputation. We've kept our nose clean. Um, we've got a great staff and a good community of, of people out there who are saying good stuff about us. And so we aren't looking for clients. And so that shows now we've done it right. When we first started slowing it down, I was actually slowing it down at a time when I wasn't looking for clients. I was still using the momentum of what had happened when I was chasing the media and chasing some of the growth and stuff. And so we had a momentum of of people still showing up from that time period. And you know, then putting the effort into growing the firm, staff, support system, really looking at what does it take? How do we want to develop as a team or do we want to develop as you know, everybody's their independent silo that you've got a planner and they go figure out their own thing. They have their own investment style. They have their own presentation style. And as long as they're bringing in, in clients and covering themselves and their overhead and creating enough little profit margin for the rest of us, we're happy. That's not our model. We work together as a team, totally interacting. Now, I have my own um, clients and Tiffany may have her own clients and Laura may have her own clients, but at the same time, our presentation is very similar to each other others. The process that we have in onboarding a new client is the same. We only have one investment department that handles all the clients and therefore I can step in and I know pretty much how Tiffany has interacted with her clients. If Tiffany needs to be out, I can step in and help her clients. So we decided on this team approach versus the independent silo. Let's just grow the firm as as fast as we can approach. And that has really worked. I mean, we've got quite a reputation in our community for the quality of the work and the in-depthness and the full service that we do for our clients to help our clients really sleep easily in that they're being taken 
care of. And that's kind of our reputation. So we're still not looking for clients or doing a, a lot, a lot of marketing, you know, out there trying to drum, drum up business. So that we've done something that's worked. But just did you have fear when you said, like, I'm, I'm going to slow this down? I'm not going to pursue leads as fast. I'm not going to jump after it as much. Like, what what happens if you don't return some reporter calls as fast, fast, and then they never call, and then they never <laughs> well, so call far, again? So far, that fear has not been warranted. I can't remember. I can't remember the fear. We had enough momentum in the beginning when I was really trying to, to build the infrastructure of the firm. We had enough momentum going that was covering the needs of the infrastructure um, and my own personal needs. So the fear really wasn't there. And then it's it's uh, we just keep growing. We're just not growing as fast as maybe some other firms, but we you know, just keep growing. So I haven't really had to have that fear. We now have a firm that if the rest of my staff had said we want to go into a faster growth phase, I think we now have the firm and the infrastructure to where we could put on the gas and start to try to grow faster. I brought that back to the team with a lot of team discussions this last year. With We have a leadership team with the leadership team this past year, and I'm not getting the sense that anybody wants to put any faster growth in place than we Well, because now you've got a team that's used to the growth that you've got. Right. And it's magical. It's just a wonderful thing to do in which we really feel like we attract people who want to help other people, who really look at financial planning as a way that benefits other people. So we attract people who see this as a calling. We're fulfilled and that we're doing a lot of good work for people. We manage the whole firm so that there is this life balance and that we can take care of each other and our lives. We adopted from another firm. And once every five years, you get a month sabbatical. And we have both the maternity and paternity leave paid for. So, you know, the total life balance and place to work is just, it's a good good thing that's happening right now. And so, so far, the fear isn't there in that we're not going to be able to continue to have the growth that's in place. We have had some fun recently in doing some sense of marketing and that we did hire a marketing firm that manages our website and helps us understand the SEO stuff and the Google ads and this kind of thing. And, and that's been mostly kind of for play, you know, writing blogs and stuff like that, that we're trying to do more of. And that's because I've got another person on board. I enjoy writing another person on board who enjoys writing. So we've been doing some more of that. And that might be helping us some in getting some of the stuff in the door. Our website has gotten a lot of people that show up doing whatever search and they find the website and they come in. Um, so we have put that kind of thing in place, which looks to have paid off. Um, but we aren't doing a whole bunch else. Me and my biggest media interaction, this is more in-house professional <laughs> as far as looking at, you know, trying to tell my story or get out there in this kind of way. And so it just hadn't happened. Now, talking about fear, I step into this year and there's fear. You know, the market is in a strange place. Inflation right. is now doing a strange thing again, which we haven't had to deal with you know, since pretty much I've been in practice. And, you know, so a lot of things are happening now that I'm kind of going, what's well, going to happen this next year? And so there's that kind of, I don't call it fear, but, you know, concern, questions that go on constantly to make sure that, you know, we're continuing to have the economic base that we need to have to continue to exist and grow and grow enough so that people can, my staff can keep up with inflation too. So those fears, I don't like the word fear, but those questions and concerns exist and we're dealing with those in the best way we can. So paint the picture for us of just the firm as it exists today. Like where, where does the business stand? 
Okay, the business right now, we're um, around 350 million under management. We've got around 250 households and we have gotten stronger. I think somebody asked me, what's your niche? And we worked for about a year um, and really trying to decide what our niche would be going forward because we had no niche. We did a demographic of client base, found out you know, most of our clients claim they're retirees. We have a, a good chunk of engineers, good chunk in the medical field. Um, and so we were looking at it going, okay, who do we want to work with? And after a year, we decided, <laughs> why should we choose a niche when our real niche is do we enjoy working with this person? Do our value systems sync up? Are they putting a smile on our face? Do, are we happy when they call us and are asking questions or want to have an appointment? You know, and so that's our niche is that we want to work with people that we enjoy working with and that have a similar value system that we have. And so that's our only niche. And so right now, what we also came back with, we have a $10,000 a year minimum fee and we've stuck to that. So pulling in certain clients that we're happy working with who are willing to pay the minimum fee. And that's pretty much our, our niche and we've been good at that part of it. And are your clients mostly local to the area? You're, I know you're in the, the Charleston area. Right. Um, no, we've got, most of them are. We're probably looking around 65, in between 65 and 70% are local to the area. But from the time frame when I was getting a lot of media attention, I developed a client base that's all over the country. In fact, we've got clients in, oh, at least 40 of the 48, you know, continental states. And then we've got, uh, until recently, one in Hawaii. And we've even got some in Europe. And we're in Australia, but the one in Australia just moved to Europe. So, you know, we've we've looked at that too. A lot of those came from the earlier times when I was more media present and, you know, just attracted people. And then we also take on the multi-generations. We're now in our G2s and G3s, which means generation, second generation, and third generation of our families. And so the, the children and grandchildren of our original clients, original client might have started off locally, and now we're you know, in Wisconsin or Maine or someplace else because their children are elsewhere. We maintain right, right. the relationships. I'm just curious if two thirds of your clients are local or, or maybe even three quarters at some point and then some right, moved away. Right. Like if three quarters are local and three quarters are retirees, like is, isn't your niche retirees in the Charleston area? <laughs> well, that's what's been that's a good, It's a good niche. Like it's a nice, nice. That's, I mean, people, that's you know, all your clients. In 2000, around 2000 to 2010, there was this big thing about, we've got to do retiring planning. We've got to come up with yeah, the yeah. the um, safe withdrawal rate. We've got to do all this. I'm going, I've been doing retirement planning in the Charleston area since 1983. So we do have a good retirement planning base and can work well with retirement planning or people in retirement. Most of our clients now are in retirement and are local. But you know what happens when people enter retirement and, well, just enter retirement? You know what happens? They, they go they go wherever they want to go when they no, retire. No, I'm not talking about where they leave, but there's an end to retirement. Most of our clients that came along with me now, 65 is young for our retirees. So we had I can't, I don't know the exact number, but 15's low clients die last year. And this is just one of the other things that's ha that happens. So although we work well with retirees, we've tried to now, if you're looking at a niche or where we're trying to go, to go either to pre-pre-retirees, where we're looking at that accumulation phase with good people we enjoy working with who are up and coming um, executives or um, 
doctors who aren't yet in their full profession but are stepping into you know the medical university locally in a in a nice way um, and we've tried to look at at different younger people that can grow more into retirees versus even the 50 we although we'll take you know you show up at our door and, and you meet our needs as far as paying our minimums and stuff and you've got you know million to five million dollars where you're probably going to take you at age 55 to 60 but our, our real desire right now to be would be to be bringing bringing in some a little bit younger people who are accumulating that we can develop those niches with so that my staff is young besides myself there's uh, the professional staff we've got a i think he's 47 year old is the next one then everybody else is 40 or younger and so the staff is pretty young so i need to have a good client base here that they can grow with we've already got a good client base that i've grown with and you know so we're trying to balance that out a little bit more. But you're right. We've got a great niche with retirees in the Charleston area. So what's like the total team structure look like now that that supports this? Okay. We've got four certified financial planners and um, then a a CFA who heads up our investment department. And then we've got a a chief compliance officer who also uh, has made it through most of the CFP program and just certain clients, he's only got about 10 to 20 clients that actually, it's probably less than 20, that answer, go directly to him and that that he's their lead planner for, although he's not a CFP. And we've got a business uh, manager who runs the front office. And then we've got a tax department, but the tax department is actually a separate business. But we've got a person in the tax department who bounces back and forth because most of the tax, most of the tax business that we have is servicing or does the tax returns for the financial planning office. And is that a separate offering for clients? Is this yeah, that it's part separate, of the like ten thousand dollar fee? To- nope, it's a totally separate business. We want to keep those those firewalls in place between the IRS and the SEC. There's some pretty good stuff that can happen on both businesses, and so just to keep them separate for all kinds of reasons has worked. And the tax office does have clients that are not financial planning clients or even part of the financial planning firm, but it can be a feeder. Oh, meaning you, like you are you are taking tax, like the tax business is doing work with folks who may not even be clients of the firm. You're also right. just doing tax returns out into the community right. and they may, right. that may serve up client opportunities for the firm. Right. And it has. We don't you know, pull people in saying, you've got to work with us and then bring all your money so that you can be a financial planning client. But we work with them. And then usually over a couple of years, they'll be going, well, you do this part too on this side. Because we're in the same building. You walk in the front door and the one um, person that greets you actually greets both, both firms' clients and interacts with both firms' clients. And so that's one of the other things that's going on that's helped us a little bit. And it's, it's one of those weird things that I actually enjoy doing taxes. Very few people enjoy doing taxes. I actually like doing taxes. So let me ask from the opposite. And we, we talked about building your team and, and how you handle the B players to move them on when maybe it's not always entirely clear that they need to move on. So you try to get clear on why they would move on. Right. I don't want to focus on, on that and, part because we don't have, we haven't hired yeah. B players well, in a long time. We've well, got our hiring funny. process down yeah. well. Good. Well, that's my question on the other end. So like what you what are you doing that retains the A players? <laughs> Well, they step on onto the platform for a reason, and they come to work with us for a reason, and we try and make those reasons match up with why we exist and why they're here. And they have a voice. Everybody's got a voice, and leadership is a big part of our culture, so we want everybody to step in, and at least we have different levels of leadership, and it's pretty clear how you work through the leadership pipeline. And everyone is supposed to be a level one leader 
within one year. And there's certain criteria you've got to go through. Um, we are, are lifelong learner oriented. So if somebody really enjoys learning and wants to continue learning, we will pay for MBAs or other graduate degrees that support, you know, I'm not sure I'd pay for somebody who said, I want to really go learn about, you know, South African art um, and its culture. I'm so not sure I'd pay re- for that. but Reasonably related. Yeah, something like that, that we support the growth, um, the life balance that we put in place that helps people enjoy their lives and enjoy their work. You know, we try and do so, all that kind of stuff. And so, so how does, worked. how does that work in, in practice? I mean, a lot of people try to talk about doing work-life balance or life balance, but what, right. what is that, what does that actually mean in your firm? Just how, how do what are you doing? How do you do that? Um, we let people live their lives <laughs> and, and yet we also require them if they're going to stay here to get their work done. So we hire people who want to get the work done, love what they do, show up with a passion. We really want those A players who are here for a reason. And A players create almost, it's not competitive. That's not really the right word, but in a sense it is environment in which we want to be, we want to show that we're the best that we can be. Each of us wants to show up that being the best we can be, that if somebody needs help because their child is sick, we want to make sure they know they have help and, and we want to be the one that's showing up to make sure they have help. Every Monday, we have our staff meeting and you get to shout out somebody's name and tell why you're shouting them out. And it's around our value system and why that week before they actually met one of the values and did something well. And so you want to be on the shout out list, you know, every, every Monday as part of that little competitive thing that's going on. Um, and I, I, it's just working. It's really, really fun. It's magical. I think people enjoy working here. We enjoy being with each other. You know, right now with COVID, that's one of our hard things is that people are out quite a bit because of different things. We're trying to be extremely respectful. We're 100% vaccinated. Um, and uh, I only know of one person in the firm who hasn't even gotten, gotten her booster. But, you know, we, are, we believe in that kind of thing. We wear masks and we're trying to be respectful for our client base all also. So this has made it a little bit more difficult because we really enjoy being in the same office space together, but we are working a lot more remotely right now or staccato. Some people will be in the office and other people remote, um, you know, going on just to deal with this COVID stuff that's reared its head again. But it works when you've got the right people. When you got those A players, it works. <laughs> so what surprised you the most about building the advisory business as you've, you've gone through this journey for 30 odd years? Uh, how good it feels when you talk about surprises me the most. It's just, it's so awesome. And I think as you're bringing along another financial planner who wants to be a financial planner and they come to you and go, I felt it. I was interacting with a client today and they asked me questions and I could actually go and give them some direction or some advice that I felt really helped them. And you know, it just, it feels so good to be able to offer something back that supports somebody else's life, that helps their life be better, helps them make decisions that that hopefully will blossom into something else as they go along their lives. It's a good avocation and profession to be in that really helps others. And I knew it in the beginning, or at least I thought I knew it, but living it for my whole life now, or at least since I was 28, 29 years old, um, has been 
just an awesome thing to see happen. The development of the IT world, when I first got started, you know, and if you were trying to manage money, you were doing it on paper and going to all the no-load mutual funds and trying to pull it together and developing your own spreadsheets. And then Schwab showed up and, you know, created a platform where you could work for them. And now you've got several platforms. So the IT world has been fascinating that allows us to do more things better to help people. And so I think leveraging IT is another really fascinating thing that, that you know, has shown up that's really helped us. Yeah. It is to me an interesting dynamic that just we've had the internet and the digital world long enough now that a lot of folks aren't aware. I mean, if you really go back uh-huh. 30, 30 years ago, like there literally were no custodial platforms. Like no. Schwab hadn't launched no. yet because Advisor Services launched 29 years ago. Right. And so like if you wanted to do this, your clients would directly hold accounts right. at no load, no load mutual fund companies. And like you would have to call. Yeah companies on behalf of each client one at a time right to get like to get a trade done or to get a transaction done depending on the company you may have to do that with the client on the on the line oh, right there right, right. Uh, or, or right there because you weren't conference calling so like when the client was in the room you would do the phone call with them on the line then they would say okay can you put the client on the phone now and then the client would give the authorization exactly and take the phone back and, and like that's each client each trade <laughs> so uh, yeah that the technology is scaled the uh, advice business, particularly the AUM business, in a lot of really interesting ways. And I've got one other thing that I think has really made a difference to me in you know being in this profession this long is the whole aging process and how now I'm 64 years old and have hit a stage of my life that I'm going, you know, people always talk about it and how you get to this stage and you start really recognizing, you know, how much, how much longer am I really going to be doing this? How much longer do I have? What are my resources? What do I really want to see happen, um, you know, for the rest of my life? And so it's made me less afraid of the aging process because we've had clients that have stepped in and changed their lives in their 60s, gone completely different routes and said, I'm going to do this now at age 60 and do something totally different than what they've grown to that point. Um, you know, we have clients, I had a woman walking one day dancing and I'm going, Miss Lucille, what you doing? She goes, life begins at 80. And, you know, you just have your, your, your fear of the aging process is lessened because you see the vitality and the wisdom. There really is a truth in that, you know, wisdom does come and develops with age more and more and more. And so using, you know, interacting with my clients that have gotten older and using them to help me understand the wisdom of the aging process or to really learn from the things that happen in the aging process. That's been awesome. So we've actually developed a whole aging um, platform. Now that we do, you know, when you do your annual review, it's not about, are you going to be financially independent to be able to live through your retirement? Our clients are pretty much able to live through their retirement. Um, yes, we may tweak the portfolio here and there. And we may have discussions about gifting and how they're going to do certain things or you know, when they're going to take their RMDs or stuff like that. But we've now developed a really fun process of talking to people about writing their story and being in charge of the denouement of their story. And so we've developed a whole process of interacting with clients around this part of their lives. 
and through um, the healthcare system, which has a lot of very medical-oriented questions and um, long-term care-oriented questions. We use that process, you know, and, and doing the discussion. I got from someplace else a legacy living in which we don't talk about legacy as only what you leave behind, but how do you live your legacy every day, especially as you're in the, um, we started at age 60 and on, to help people really recognize that this part of their life is just as important and how much value can they bring to the table as they're going forward in this part of their life. And so that's been really fun too. And now I'm there and now I'm talking, not only talking the talk, I'm writing my own story and helping my clients by sharing my story with them as they're sharing their stories with me about, you know, this stage of our lives and what the aging process means and how finances play a role in it. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh, 2008, end of 2008, early 2009. I rode through the early 2000s. I was too young and, and naive to even be fearful during that time period. And I was, you know, so that, that affected me, but it wasn't, I don't know, it just wasn't as bad. This extreme downturn of the total crash. In 2000, early 2000s, you had certain asset classes that were substantially outperforming other asset classes and learning about that kind of kept you going, okay, I'm adding value. We're going to put small cap value in people's portfolios. Well, small cap value didn't bail you out in 2008. You know, bonds didn't bail you out in 2008. It's like the whole world seemed to be coming to an end. And so it was a very anxious time and I was anxious and yet my client base and my staff were leaning on me to help them through this really horrific, um, fearful time period. And so that was, um, I remember being in Boston in 2000, October, I think it was October, 2008, watching the market drop like crazy below at that time 10,000 was a high or something and it was like okay we just hit 10,000 are we going to break through 9,000 I think in that day we broke through 9,000 before I caught a plane leaving Boston the annual conference I think it was in Boston that year for FPA it was a really bizarre strange fearful time to work through for myself as a person and then to realize that you know my I had built something that I needed to be there and be strong for other people when it was hard to be strong for myself so just what do you do in that moment? How do you cope with that? Um, I exercise <laughs> and meditate. I do a little bit of, of, okay, let me meditate. I have a meditation or a quiet practice in the morning. Um, I also have a, a Christian belief, and so that plays a big role in it. But then, you know, just to really get by day by day, I start off my morning with a meditative prayer time. And then I found I could get rid of all thoughts if I go and, you know, run 10 miles. <laughs> like, okay, I'm not thinking about anything now except I need a nap, uh, you know, type of thing. So uh, exercise, I'm a fourth degree black belt also, and I still do, I'm going to do one last. My I'm, my joints are still in good shape and I want to keep them in good shape. So I'm going to do one last half marathon before I'm 60, or when I'm 65, I'll just turn 65. I'll finish my last mar- half marathon. So I do that kind of stuff to kind of help me just kind of clear my brain and look at other things. So like, is that something you started doing in the moment of the stress? Well, obviously not like becoming a fourth degree black belt. That would take a while, but was this a like financial crisis happened? You said, I, I, I I need to find a better balance. So I'm going to start meditating or was this already something? I've already been meditating before that. I just recognized, you know, the value that it brought to the table. It was like, I did it before and it was just kind of, Oh, here's something fun to do. And I'm doing this for fun. And then I recognized, okay, it's not only fun to do, it is healthy to do. 
And it's really hmm. helping me be the best I can be during this time period in which nobody knows the answers. Nobody has, you know, how quickly things are going to recover or, you know, whether our system, we, we chose um, instead of austerity, we chose stimulus to get through it. You're watching the European countries and everything go austerity. It's like, what's the right answer? We didn't know at the time, but it helped me just kind of put things aside. I would read things from other people talking about focusing on, you know, the things that do bring you joy. And I'd share those kind of things with my clients, you know, that it, it's really, you can still, we live on the beach or we live on a beach community. So you can still go on a walk on the beach um, and really be there with somebody, walk your dog or walk with a loved one or something and just enjoy the moments that life's bringing about. So I focused on those kind of things and tried to help my clients look at those kind of things also. So what do you know now about kind of running and building an advice business? You could go back, wish you could go back and tell you from, from 20 or 30 years ago. Um, one, not to be afraid of letting the B players go. I think that was one of the things that, that I, for a long time, I was in that same quandary that you were talking about. Oh, these B players are getting their work done and they show up and, you know, they're okay. I had this one gal work for me for 10 years. It wasn't until after she left that I recognized I was walking on eggshells around her. I wasn't really able to be me and to be mm. the best me. And she really wasn't an A player for our firm. You know, she's a great person has gone on to do great things. Um, but for our firm, she wasn't the right person. And I should have recognized that earlier when I knew I was walking on eggshells around her. I just didn't deal with it until after she was gone. And then the reality really struck. And so, you know, getting a good team, getting a good staff that works well with with you as an owner and with each other. And people say, you know, well, is it skill sets and is it personality? You can, you know, if you don't have the right personality, then you, they'll never work and you can train skills. Uh-uh. I've had both. That one time I was telling you about when I had the two people that weren't good fits. Well, one had great skill sets, but a really great teen personality. The other one had an awesome personality, really made you feel good when he walked in the room. He was funny. He was lively. Um, he had no skill sets. And we worked with him for four years to try and train him. I, I should have recognized that a long time before. I call them my $300,000 mistakes or my you know, half a million dollar mistakes, keeping around too long. And then you're still starting over and, you know, stuff. And so recognizing and Boy, building a team. It, it does frame it differently when you start adding up four years of How salary many, and say yeah. like, that was, that was my $400,000 exactly. mistake. Exactly. You know, you're looking at it's like, and you can try, you know, you listen to Collins and he's talking about moving them to different seats on the bus. You can try moving them to different seats on the bus. But if you're really churning about somebody, I haven't even really found that different seats on the bus work. If they came on to be on your bus on a certain seat, moving them around, I have, I have not found that work. So not being afraid to get the right team in place that is a team that's knocking it out of the park, that you've got A players, that you are so proud of your A players. Don't be afraid to do that because it's miraculous, fun, and just it's wondrous. You know, what can happen when you've got that kind of team in place that makes it makes it even better. Um, not being afraid of technology, you know, really using technology, outsourcing. I mean, one of the two what? of the things that we've done, outsourcing uh, compliance and um, marketing, you know, have really helped leverage a lot of our other stuff. Now, we interact with them, but we're not doing the marketing or doing the compliance. We've got a phenomenal compliance firm and a good marketing firm. And and who have you outsourced to that you've been happy with? Like who who does the compliance and marketing? Fairview, they've got a whole name. We got a guy on inside who you know interacts with them regularly, so he's our chief compliance officer in the firm. Is Fairview something? Fairview Invest, the the 
for compliance consulting. Yeah, okay. they are so good. And we had an audit. Well, they don't call it audits. They call it an examination, I guess, what the SEC does. But they came in two years ago. Two of the Fairview people came and worked with us throughout the whole audit. Before the audit, they did interviews with us. So they were pretending to be SEC people, taking us through to help us learn how so to interact and interview. Mock, whole was, like mock audit process. Yeah, it was so good. And we, although, you know, you've got to, you're not going to get away with absolutely no mentions. And we had a couple of mentions of things we needed to improve upon, but it was actually not a bad experience. And they're the ones that help make it not a bad experience. And so that was, yeah, I, I just rave about them, even though they're not cheap. I don't have to worry about what's the new laws that are coming out. How do we comply with this? They pretty much tell us. But even when I'm writing about, you know, happy new year, you know, what are your goals and dreams for this next year? And it's not about the market. I'm still supposed to run it through. But anyway, they're good. They're thorough. And they are in that way. They're a little bit of a pain in the neck, but they're good and they're thorough. Well, and then, that is what the compliance folks are supposed to do. It does show yeah. the culture of compliance. Yeah. And and then who, who are you using for marketing that you We've been- got a local group called the Design Group that's really helped us with overall marketing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we have monthly interactions with them as we're writing stuff. We're looking at, you know, what kind of what what kind of activities happening on our website, you know, what are our Google ads doing for us and different things. And that's been that's been playful and fun just to learn about because that was something I knew about, but it's until we actually started doing it, we tried doing it in house and that was just that was painful, you know, hiring somebody that could do it in house. We we're also asking them to do other client service work. Right. So outsourcing that has been been wonderful and it cost me a third of what it cost me to have the person that I was hiring to do it. And so for, for those who are listening, who are, who are wondering, so this is episode 270. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 270, we'll have links out for uh, Fair For You Invest and Design Group and the others if you if you want to dig in further for uh, for some of the companies that have been mentioned in the discussion here. So Kira, what, like, I'm wondering just for being as established as you are into the, into the practice and a, and a routine, like what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Uh, Mondays are staff day that Monday morning is pretty much no clients. We have staff meeting. We review the prior week's activities, the next four weeks activities, who's out of office. Cause when you're not tracking paid time off, you have to balance how, who, how many people are going to be off at different times. And so, you know, we go through the next month, uh, with and, paid time off. Yeah. And why just to ask quickly, like, why aren't you tracking paid time off? <laughs> Because we hire people that want to be here and want to get their work done, and we're not going to worry about whether they're getting time off or not as long as they're getting their work done. So we've adopted that kind of philosophy that we treat – we hire people who are adults, who are competent, who are a fit. It's the intent upon hiring them, and we treat them that way and give them the respect to manage their own lives to create that life balance. And so that's why we do that. But we still but have to be responsible. You are, so you are still measuring whether like the the stuff is getting done, the work right. is getting done. Are you are you having the client meetings? Are you getting the plans done? Right. Did you do the trades that's, of the paperwork? That's the whatever focus. It is? That's the focus, and we look at it. And my calendar is color coded, so you can pull up my calendar and see how many client facing activities I've got going on in a week, or you know outside. Uh, appointments or meetings that aren't client facing, but that I consider important business. So you can look at and see just kind of the whole day. This stage, I usually will have this week, I've got three client facing meetings in which we're, we're doing some client facing stuff, two client 
pretty, pretty intense phone calls going on and you know this kind of thing in which I'm interacting with you. I'm also, I've stepped in the chair of the local Chamber of Commerce for this year. And to me, that's a very important role. I love my Charleston community and so stepping in. So a large part of my time this year will be taken up and interacting with the Chamber of Commerce and the different things we've got going on. Charleston is a hot community in major growth modes with a lot of stuff going on and happening here as a whole community. So it's fun kind of transitioning my individual financial planning mode into my financial planning and growth mode for our community. So that's taken up a lot of time. I've got a guy working with me like today, I'll be interacting with him to just, where is he? How far along is he along the projects I've asked him to help me with? And so plugging in and, and talking with other people. And and that's a big part of my week also. So, so it sounds like structurally Mondays are kind of set for staff days, team yep. meetings, getting oriented and stuff. And just the the rest of the week then is the, the ongoing mishmash of client meetings and phone calls and external Except meetings. For Friday and afternoon. Volunteer in the community. Friday okay. afternoon is also, um, you know, we'd have our investment team has its own private meeting. I've got one staff person that during COVID, we learned that she's awesome working remotely. Her husband's in the military, so she now lives in Seattle, although she's lead planner for mm-hmm. several clients and developing more and more lead planners. We're even prospecting over Zoom, and, you know, she's getting new clients using Zoom. So I interact. She's a direct report with me, and so we have a sacred time Friday afternoons that she and I get a one-on-one every Friday afternoon just to make sure she stays feeling good about being part of the team. So Friday afternoons are kind of, we start off Monday morning pulling everybody together, looking at the week ahead, and then Friday afternoon, trying to look at um, specifics as to where we're going. And then I usually try and reserve three to five as my own time to get organized and, and do my own reviews and for just personally. So what advice would you give younger or new, newer advisors looking to become a financial planner and get started in the industry today? It depends on if you're if you've got the ability to do it on your own, no matter what, it's an uphill battle from the beginning, you know, trying to do it all yourself and to figure it out all yourself. If you can, you know, try and, and find a firm that has your own value system that you can go and be part of, that you can learn from and that you can grow with and that you can add value within that firm. And that's a great way to try and get started. Uh, If you're looking to get started, you know, Caleb Brown's group will help connect you with a a good firm. Uh, And so just figuring out how you're going to get started and then, you know, determining, do you really want to do the client facing full financial planning? Are you really interested in investments? You know, what is it you're really trying to add value because they're all part of the whole financial planning picture and they can all add value. So what comes next for you? What comes next for me? My my denouement of my story, I have gotten very involved in my Charleston community and I love the discussion we've been having recently. It makes me sad, but I still enjoy it with the diversity, equity, and inclusion, looking at trying to minority businesses, helping minority businesses. I'm a real believer in business and yes, I'm a capitalist. So I believe businesses are where we can create economic foundations and really raise other communities or raise underprivileged communities to become more privileged. So I've actually bought up a, a block of land in a city called Hanahan, South Carolina, in which I am now looking to develop this block of land. Most of the land's empty. I've got one building on my, my block that I'm using as a base. The city's looking at creating density, and I'm going to go create 
a one of the terms is a well community, W-E-L-L, or a community of wellness. So I'm looking to try and create a mixed-use community that I'll be part of in which I will help seed entrepreneurial uh, minority-run businesses to get started in this area. My themes are food, music, and art. And you know, just really, that's my next piece is developing this little community and putting in place, trying to help other small businesses wow. get started and looking at this is an area that's going to gentrify. And I'm not against gentrification, but I really would like to see all ships rise with the tide. And so helping the locals in this community to try and be part of the economic that's coming to this community and therefore establishing businesses to get them started. It hadn't happened yet. It's going to happen because of some rapid transit or some mass transit that's coming through the community that's going to give access more to this community. So anyway, that's my next life and it's extremely exciting. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and just one of the themes that comes up is the word success means very different things to different people. And so you have used, as you've been on this track of building what anyone would objectively call a very successful business uh, for the advisory firm, I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Early on, another planner talked with me, and this was back in the 80s, about you've got to understand what is enough. And that's a hard one as you're growing and you're getting into it. It's like, what is enough? You haven't really, you don't really know it yet because you're not there. Well, I now know it in that I found that I have enough, that I've got three sons that have grown into wonderful people. I've got grandchildren. I've got a husband that I've been married to for 40 years. He calls me his favorite wife. And you know, a business that I've grown since 1983 from something that every, people were asking me in the beginning, you know, what are you running a charity or a business to now that's a very successful, recognized <laughs> business in our community. And I've got a staff that I love that's an awesome, awesome staff. And I enjoy working with and wanting to see the growth of all the people I work with. So I'm, I'm, I'm overflowing with enough. And so looking at that, it's like I've identified what's enough. If I don't succeed, you know, I've told you about this new venture. Venture I'm into, and this new venture is 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 something I'm in, energized about. I'm excited about. Um, if it doesn't happen or I don't really get to do it, it's not going to be the end of me. But I'm not going to give up trying, you know, to to do this at this stage because I've got a lot of energy around it. But it's it's not going to make or break my sense of success. If it does turn into something really good, it'll add to the overflowingness. But if it flops, I'll just okay, <laughs> learn it, learn again. So understanding what is enough and identifying that for yourself. Um, I'm also a, a foodie and my children tell me I can't tell people I'm a wino because that doesn't sound good. So I'm a wine yes, not a wine no. Um, so learning more about wine and travel and stuff are the other things that I just enjoy doing. So having enough time to balance and be able to travel. I now have a granddaughter who's, who says, Kiki, that's my grandmother's name. You know, you're supposed to take me everywhere in the world. So I've got a companion for a while to travel with once we get back to traveling. Cool. Um, you know, so, so those are the things that are, are really meaningful to me now as the ongoing mm -hmm. foundation of the firm, the ongoing love and support of my family and my friends. Um, 
another sense of success is I was getting off the ICFP board before FPA got started. I just started the residency program, and that's another thing that it's still going on every year. The residency program this next year we're having. Well, again, we'll see what happens with COVID, but we we're trying to do two residencies. Um, we were sold out the last couple of times we've been doing it, and that's been another thing that helps other young people learn more about how to be, not how to do, but how to be a financial planner. And so that's given me a sense of success and fulfillment. Um, so I could go on. <laughs> it's it's just being filled with joy and understand what brings you your own joy. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Kira, so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. You don't know how much this means to me for you to reach out to my, my small firm that's not shooting for the stars, but we are amongst the stars. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.